Jeremiah 22, beginning of verse 1. Let's read the first five verses and then we'll pray. Thus says the Lord, Go down to the house of the king of Judah, and there speak this word and say, Hear the word of the Lord, O king of Judah, you who sit on the throne of David, you and your servants and your people who enter these gates. Thus says the Lord, Execute judgment and righteousness and deliver the plundered out of the hand of the oppressor. Do no wrong and do no violence to the stranger, the fatherless, or the widow, nor shed innocent blood in this place. For if you indeed do this thing, then shall enter the gates of this house riding on horses and in chariots, accompanied by servants and people, kings who sit on the throne of David. But if you will not hear these words, I swear by myself, says the Lord, that this house shall become a desolation. Let's pray. Father, we thank you and we bless you for the opportunity to once again gather in your precious name to study your word tonight. We ask for the anointing and blessing of your spirit. We pray, Father, that you would indeed bring us wisdom and understanding through your spirit to our hearts and to our minds and cause us, Lord God, to grow in your grace and knowledge and understanding. Help us to understand these words in light of the days and times in which we live And we pray this and ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Now, as as we had seen in our previous study of chapter 21, one indictment continues to go out to the kings and the leaders of Judah in chapter 22 due to their growing corruption, which led to an immoral and unjust political system. And I mention the political system because we already know that the spiritual system was destroyed pretty much by the kings. The very fact that the kings were raised to to follow the law of God and to lead the people by the law of God and yet to disregard the law of God and to disregard the word of God is certainly going to bring upon them as well as the people the judgment that uh, we have been... uh, seeing impending and now even at the footsteps of Jerusalem. The temporal and the spiritual leaders of the people who were mainly responsible for this impending natural, uh, I should say national catastrophe, were receiving their merited rebuke and their judgment. The section that we just read in verses 1 through 5 anticipates the direct messages to the three kings. Now, last week, let me just, let me just say that last week we, we were hearing Jeremiah speak and responding to certain things that were asked of Zedekiah, the king. 
And I told you that this was all out of chronology. Zedekiah, in fact, is the last king of Judah before going into captivity. But now what we're going to see are words given to the three previous kings, all of them related to Josiah, the good king, three sons and one grandson. The three kings are Shalom, who is Jehoahaz, Jehoiakim, and Jehoiakin, or Jehoiachin, in verses 11 through 30. But before we proceed, I, I wanted you to look at a chart showing the kings that are addressed, including Zedekiah from chapter 21. So as you look at this, it gives you a little bit of an understanding and a chronology. So I wanted you to see it because, you know, we're going back and forth in time. As we did last week, we went all the way to the end, right before Babylon attacks. And now we're, we're, we're moved more toward where we had been in time. And again, you'll notice Josiah at the very top. I don't know if my laser works here. Maybe it does. Well, battery's necessary. Oh well. Anyway, Josiah was the one who was the good king. That was the father. Uh, reigned there for 31 years. He began his ministry during the, uh, I should say, that Jeremiah, the prophet, began his ministry during the reign of Josiah. And you'll see the dates up there, 640 through 609 B.C. Now when Josiah was killed by the Egyptian pharaoh Necho, the people uh, put his son Jehoahaz... And you'll notice where Jehoiah is, number two. He's Shalom, as you'll see in just a moment. In 609 B.C., they, the, the people elected him and put him on the throne. He only lasted three months. And when Necho found out what had been made, or who had been made king, I should say, he took Jehoahaz prison, a prisoner to Egypt, and he made his older brother Jehoiakim the king. This is the other son of Josiah, that's number three, who is also called Eliakim in the scriptures. And uh, he lived from 609, or he reigned from 609 through 598 B.C. Now when he died, when Jehoiakim or Eliakim died, then his son Jehoiachin, or Jehoiakin, and you'll notice he's down below, and uh, he is called Jeconiah in scripture, and in in our text tonight, he's called Coniah, and I'll tell you why in a little bit. But he uh, happened to uh, last only three months as well until Nebuchadnezzar came, and he seized Jerusalem and took Jehoiachin to Babylon as his prisoner. Now, Nebuchadnezzar then made Jehoiakim's uncle Zedekiah, who we met last week, he made him king, and Zedekiah was another son of Josiah. So he ruled from 597 to 586 B.C., and he was the last king until Nebuchadnezzar came and destroyed Jerusalem. So this is just to give you a little bit of a, kind of a, an understanding of who is who and what is what in our text tonight. And so the history is this. Godly King Josiah reigned for 31 years, and he sought to lead the people back to God. But the last four kings of Judah 
were wicked kings, even though three of them were Josiah's sons and one his grandson. And as we saw last time, then Zedekiah, the last king, was actually addressed first in chapter 21, out of chronological order, to clarify immediately that by his reign, neither the king nor the people would escape the coming judgment at the hands of the Babylonians, which is what we learned last week. So the first nine verses of our text, the first nine verses of our text are probably still aimed at Zedekiah. Now something that probably, possibly was aimed at, at Shalom, uh, being the next king in line. But uh, more than likely because of the way that it's written in, uh, there were no chapter divisions in, in Jeremiah's prophecy, therefore we're thinking that it's probably still aimed at Zedekiah. So let's read this again, uh, verses 1 through 5, and we begin our study here. Thus says the Lord God, Go down to the house of the king of Judah, and there speak this word. God is speaking to Jeremiah the prophet. And there he says, Speak this word and say, Hear the word of the Lord, O king of Judah, you who sit on the throne of David, you and your servants and your people who enter these gates. Thus says the Lord. Now this is the reason why some people think it's probably an earlier king that's being spoken to, because... They're being told, execute judgment and righteousness and deliver the plundered out of the hand of the oppressor. Do no wrong and do no violence to the stranger, the fatherless or the widow, nor shed innocent blood in this place. For if you indeed do this thing, then shall enter the gates of this house, riding on horses and in chariots, accompanied by servants and people, kings who sit on the throne of David. But if you will not hear these words, I swear by myself, says the Lord, that this house shall become a desolation. So Jeremiah is commanded by the Lord then to go from the temple to the king's palace. If you remember last time, Jeremiah had gone to the temple to deliver this message. Uh, but now he's, he's commanded to go down to the king's palace and deliver this message to the king and to his officials for them to do what is just and right. Now whether it's Shalom or whether it's Zedekiah, the prophet was still there to tell these kings to do what's right. Because that's what they were called to do. And while this message is similar to verse 12 in chapter 21, here there are certain consequences attached to the actions. And this is what brings us back to probably being Zedekiah. If the king uh, were to be careful to observe God's commands, he could expect blessing. But if he disobeyed God's commands, the Lord vowed that the palace would become a ruin. They were simply to practice justice in their decisions regarding civil matters. Now, folks, I tell you, I'm, I'm going to tell you right now, before we really get further on into this message, be thinking about our situation today. Be thinking about our time and our day and even our nation. Think about it. Think how the scriptures point all through time and are so contemporary in, in its, in its uh, revelation that, that, you know, we're, we're seeing some things happen here tonight that I'm not even going to bring them up. You're just going to know we're having problems because of some of these very same issues. That's all I'll say. The kings were simply to practice justice in their decisions regarding civil matters. They were to protect the meek and the vulnerable, and they were not to shed innocent blood. Now the prophet Micah would also sound off on this theme. 
This is a, this is a beautiful verse of Scripture. We, we've often sung these words as a chorus. But Micah 6.8 says, He has shown you, O man, what is good. And what does the Lord require of you but to do justly and to love mercy and to walk humbly with your God? What does the Lord require of you but to do justly, to love mercy and to walk humbly with your God? Now, this is a tremendous statement, not just to us, not just to people who believe in God, especially to the kings of Judah and Israel. This is what they were to express. This is what they were to give example of in their lives and in their walk and in the things that they did. Now, the callousness of Zedekiah's reign. We talked a little bit about Zedekiah last week. The callousness of Zedekiah's reign over the people was evident in the fact that he sat upon David's throne in David's house of cedar and benefiting from the covenant God had made with David. And yet Zedekiah wasn't serving the Lord as David served the Lord. Zedekiah exploited the poor and the needy. He shed innocent blood. He refused to repent and turn to God. And he was certainly far from representing his name for what it meant. The name Zedekiah. The Lord is righteous. Far from that. Turn to 2 Kings chapter 24. And notice what it says about Zedekiah. Actually, his name was Mataniah. You'll notice that the king of Babylon made Mataniah, which literally means gift of the Lord, who was also Jehoiachin's uncle, king in his place, and changed his name to Zedekiah, the Lord is righteous. Now, the Nebuchadnezzar changed his name. That is to show you, I'm in charge of you. Or as they say today, I'm the boss of you. So I change your name. And I'm changing your name to an ironic name. One that really doesn't fit what you're doing. Your name now is Zedekiah, which means the Lord is righteous, but you don't judge righteously as a king. Zedekiah was 21 years old when he became king and he reigned 11 years in Jerusalem. His mother's name was Hamutal, the daughter of Jeremiah of Libna. He also did evil in the sight of the Lord according to all that Jehoiakim had done. For because of the anger of the Lord this happened in Jerusalem and Judah that he finally cast them out from his presence and Zedekiah rebelled against the king of Babylon and the rest is history. Now again, Jeremiah gave the leaders a window of opportunity. If it had been Shalom and, and Jehoiakim and Jehoiachin, then it's possible that it could also have been to Zedekiah as well, even though last week we realized that the Lord said, you're not going to stay here, uh, you're going to be judged, and so are the people. And there's no escape. That's what we learned last time. You know, doesn't God to the very end give opportunity? So, if they repented and did justly, the Lord would deliver the city and establish David's throne. Now, God always knows. We don't, but God always knows who's going to make that decision, who's not going to make that decision. Who's going to do justly, who's not going to do justly. Who's going to listen to the Lord, who's not going to listen to the Lord. We, we don't have to judge that. God's in control of that. But instead, their hearts were hard and their ears were heavy to, and too heavy to hear what God had to say, so they didn't listen to God. 
And the ruins of Jerusalem would become a monument. I want, I want you to think about this thought, that the ruins of Jerusalem will become a monument of their wickedness and their rebellion. The ruins of Jerusalem. Now, what does that say to you? Jerusalem being the city that God chose to be His throne. The city of Zion. The city that some of you have been to and have seen, and, and you say, this is the place where Jesus is coming back to. For a certain amount of time, that city would become a monument to wickedness and rebellion. Notice in verses 6 through 9 now of our text. For thus says the Lord to the house of the king of Judah, You are Gilead to me, the head of Lebanon. And yet I surely will make you a wilderness, cities which are not inhabited. I will prepare destroyers against you, everyone with his weapons. They shall cut down your choice cedars and cast them into the fire. And many nations will pass by this city, and everyone will say to his neighbor, Why has the Lord done so to this great city? And then they will answer, Because they have forsaken the covenant of the Lord their God and worshipped other gods and served them. Well, that's all we've been seeing throughout 22 chapters of the book of Jeremiah. From the very beginning, these people were rebellious against the Lord. These people had chosen to follow after other gods rather than follow after the Lord God of Israel. So the royal palace, now in this little section, six and, uh, verses 6 through 9, the royal palace was the focus of of Jeremiah's message. Gilead and Lebanon were, were both known for their forests, parts of, of Gilead which was on the east side of the Jordan, and then of course Lebanon being uh, north of, of, of Israel. Both were known, known for forests. Gilead itself was also the most fertile part of the country of Israel on the other side of the Jordan. It was the most fertile land. Lebanon was, of course, known for its cedars, the cedars of Lebanon. And the palace of the king of Israel was made substantially with the lumber from these areas, to the extent that the king's palace itself was called the house of the forest of Lebanon in the scriptures. In 1 Kings chapter 7, verses 1 through 5. And, and, and here in Solomon's reign, it says, But Solomon took 13 years to build his own house. Que suave. Thirteen years. Wow. Could any, of you, could any of you wait for a house to be built in thirteen years? Well, you know, he built one part of it, probably lived in a nice part of it, and why don't you just keep adding and adding? I guess, I guess you have to do that when you have a, you know, a thousand wives and concubines. Got to put them somewhere. But Solomon took 13 years to build his own house, so he finished all his house. He also built the house of the forest of Lebanon. Do you see it? He also built the house of the forest of Lebanon. That's his palace. Its length was 100 cubits, its width 50 cubits, its height 30 cubits with four rows of cedar pillars, cedar beams on the, on the, on the pillars. Cedar has such a unique 
fragrance to it. It's a beautiful fragrance. So can you imagine this house, how it smelled? And it was paneled with cedar above the beams that were on 45 pillars, 15 to a row. There were windows with bevel frames in three rows and windows uh, and window opposite uh, and window was opposite window in three tiers. And all the doorways and doorposts had rectangular frames and, and window was opposite window in three tiers. But what a, what a beautiful description. But after God's judgment, the palace would be as desolate as a desert. And that's what this section that we read in verses 6 through 9 is saying. Why? Isaiah 22, verse 8. God removed the protection of Judah. He removed the protection of Judah. You looked in that day to the armor of the house of the forest, the same palace. They went in to get their weapons that they had made, handmade weapons they were ready to use, to no avail. Judgment was coming. Jeremiah 52, the very end of this book, Verses 12 and 13, Now in the fifth month, on the tenth day of the month, which was the nineteenth year of King Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, Nebuzaradan, the king, or I should say the captain of the guard who served the king of Babylon, came to Jerusalem. He burned the house of the Lord and the king's house. So the temple was burned, the house of the king was burned, and all the houses of Jerusalem, that is, all the houses of the great, All of them that had the cedar, he burned with fire. All gone. The beauty of Israel, the beauty of Judah, the beauty of Jerusalem, the beauty of Zion, all gone. And it became as a desert. As people from other nations looked upon the destruction of this magnificent structure, they would ask why the Lord had done such a thing. Again, we read this in our text. Verses 8 and 9. They would ask why the Lord had done such a thing, and of course the answer was simple. God had judged the city because the people had forsaken the covenant and they worshipped other gods. And I wonder sometimes why it is that people will take lightly the things that God never has taken lightly. His own word, His own covenant, His own contract that He made with His people, done in such a way that if we trust Him, He will bring us through it all. And we take it lightly. Man has taken it lightly. God's people have taken it lightly. There have been times when the church has taken it lightly. There are times today that the church takes the covenant of God lightly. We cannot, as we see the day of Christ approach, take these things lightly. We cannot say, this was for another time. We're a postmodern generation. We might as well say we're a post-Christian generation because some are believing that today. I will not believe that. Well, I'll, I'll hold to that until the rapture of the church. 
But I will hold to the very fact that even today, the Church of Jesus Christ, which is still here, which is still to be active, which is still to be a light for, for the glory of Christ, we need to wake up and be the body of Christ and be the church. But we have to take God's word seriously. As we continue in verse 10 of our text, Jeremiah 22, verse 10, Jeremiah now says to the king, Weep not, or the people, Weep not for the dead, nor bemoan him. Weep bitterly for him who goes away, for he shall return no more nor see his native country. For thus says the Lord concerning Shalom, now the word coming to the next king, Shalom, the son of Josiah, king of Judah, who reigned instead of Josiah his father, who went from this place, he shall not return here anymore. But he shall die in the place where they have led him captive and shall see this land no more. So from the callousness of Zedekiah, We go back in time, of course, we have to go back chronologically to Shalom. So we go back in time to the hopelessness of hapless King Jehoahaz, who is here called Shalom. And think about this, the hopelessness of this king, who was a hapless king. I like the word hapless, H-A-P-L-E-S-S. It has a few meanings, but the one that fits here is miserable. He was a miserable king because he provided no hope for the people. When King Josiah died a a decade before, the majority of the people mourned his death greatly. And even Jeremiah had written a lamentation honoring honoring Josiah. 2 Chronicles 35 verse 25. It says, Jeremiah also lamented for for, jo- uh, for Josiah. And to this day, all the singing men and the singing women speak of Josiah in their lamentations. They made it a custom in Israel, and indeed they were written in the laments. But there was no hope for a nation in looking back and weeping over a dead past. There was no hope for them crying about Josiah. He was gone. And there certainly wasn't any hope in expecting Shalom, the people's choice for king, the one who was elected king by the people. That wasn't the way it was supposed to be done. All these last kings, you know, being subservient to another king or being subservient to another uh, oppressor or being there by the will of the people and not by the will of God. So there, there wasn't any hope in expecting Shalom, who was the people's choice for king, to be released from his Egyptian captivity because you know what? He was in captivity. Turn to 2 Kings 23. By the way, keep your finger over there in 2 Kings 23 and 24 because we go back and forth a, a little bit tonight. 2 Kings 23. And really do a lot of reading in 2 Kings 23 and 24 so we can kind of get our, 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 our bearings with Jeremiah where we are tonight and in the next week as well. 2 Kings 23 verses 31 through 34. Jehoahaz, who is Shalom, 
Jehoahaz was 23 years old when he became king, and he reigned three months in Jerusalem. His mother's name was Hamutal, the daughter of Jeremiah of Libna. I know that I've read this already, but bear with me. And he did evil in the sight of the Lord, according to all that his fathers had done. Now Pharaoh Necho put him in prison at Riblah in the land of Hamath. It sounds very much like Hamas. <laughs> that he might not reign in Jerusalem. And he imposed on the land a tribute of a hundred talents of silver and a talent of gold. And then Pharaoh Necho made Eliakim, the son of Josiah, king in his place of his father Josiah, and changed his name to Jehoiakim. And Pharaoh took Jehoahaz, who was Shalom, I should say, and went to Egypt and he died there. So instead of looking at the past, the people should have considered. Now, this, this is for us today. Listen. Instead of looking to the past, the people should have considered their situation and immediately sought the Lord. We would think that a people who were chosen by God to be His people, would look to Him. But they were too far gone. Josiah was dead. He was the good king. And he brought reform. But I did say a while back when that reform was there that a lot of it was indeed outward and not as inward as it needed to be. Because as soon as Josiah died, what happened to the people? Josiah was dead. Jehoahaz was exiled. But God was still on the true throne. And the kings to follow should have learned from their godly father, Josiah, what to do. But it wasn't done. And I believe this is a lesson for us today. Sometimes it's easy for us to look at a situation that we're in or to look at, at, at circumstances that, that make us think, you know, we have to figure this out ourselves. And the moment we try to figure things out ourselves, that's the moment that we lose touch with the one who can give us the wisdom to accomplish what we need to do through his wisdom and his power and His grace. This is where I think that in Christianity we have to be careful about theoretical Christianity. Believing from the head and not from the heart. We need to be practical Christians. That's, that sounds, maybe it sounds somewhat mundane, but, but folks, we need to be practical Christians who actually believe what the Word of God says. And we actually believe that there is a God who says, come to me and, and, and I will provide for, for you everything you need for life and godliness. Come to me and I'll give you rest. Come to me and I'll give you what you need. I will be your supply. I will be your everything. We need to start being practical Christians who go to Him for everything that we need in this life. Because if we don't, 
all we will find ourselves in will be hopelessness, which will lead to haplessness, miserableness. This word is be miserable. And and let me say that theoretical Christianity might as well be called theoretical atheism in the church. We either believe or we don't. And we need to trust in the Lord. We need to read all those scriptures that say, trust in the Lord. Proverbs 3, verse 5. Trust in the Lord with all your heart. Lean not on your own understanding. In all your ways acknowledge Him. And He shall direct your path. Trust in the Lord. Now we move from the hopelessness of Shalom. By the way, Shalom. Why the name Shalom? Do you know that the people, because they they thought that... he, as king, would, would be somewhat a he would be somewhat of a, of, of a of a of their hope that he was at times called shalom. He was at times called peace. In this, Jehovah has we will have peace. In our time. But the word shalom means retribution. Instead of peace, there would be retribution. These are the ironies of the names that we're finding here tonight. So we move from the hopelessness of shalom to the covetousness of Jehoiakim. And in verse 13, as we read on, and I'm going to read a large section of this all the way down to verse 23, and then we'll comment along the way because I think most of it is pretty much understandable in its content. Woe to him who builds his house by unrighteousness and his chambers by injustice, who uses his neighbor's service without wages and gives him nothing for his work who says, I will build myself a wide house with spacious chambers and cut out windows for it, paneling it with cedar and painting it with vermilion. Shall you reign because you enclose yourself in cedar? Now this is God's question to Jehoiakim. Shall you reign because you enclose yourself in cedar? Did not your father eat and drink and do justice and righteousness? And then it was well with him. He judged the cause of the poor and needy. Then it was well. Was not this knowing me? Folks, I want you to stop right there. And and, and I want you to underline that phrase. Was not this knowing me? And think about that question. I just want to stop there for a moment. I want you to think about what is being posed to this king. Josiah, his father, judged the cause of the poor and needy, then it was well with him. Was not this knowing me? In other words, wasn't this 
Josiah knowing me because he obeyed me? Because he, he did what my word said? He did what the law was, was written to, to be for the people? The contrast is that what he's saying in, in, in contrast is, Josiah, your father knew me. You do not know me. And it brings to mind something that Jesus taught us. If you've done it to the least of these, my brethren, you have done it unto me. Think about that. When, Lord, did I do these things for you? The Lord said, when you went into the prisons, when you went and fed the poor, when you did all of these things, when you did it to the least of these, my brethren, you did it unto me. There's, there's a sense of knowing God because you know what He requires of us. So he judged the cause of the poor and needy, then it was well, was not this knowing me, says the Lord. Verse 17, yet your eyes and your heart are for nothing but your covetousness, for shedding innocent blood and practicing oppression and violence. Seems to me like each one of these kings touched upon these issues of shedding innocent blood and practicing oppression and violence. Therefore, thus says the Lord concerning Jehoiakim, the son of Josiah, king of Judah, they shall not lament for him, saying, Alas, my brother, or alas, my sister. They shall not lament for him, saying, Alas, my master, or alas, his glory. He shall be buried with the burial of a donkey. <laughs> wow. You might be asking, well, how was the donkey buried? Notice, it says, dragged and cast out beyond the gates of Jerusalem. Then he says, go up to Lebanon, cry out, and lift up your voice to Bashan. Cry from Abarim, for all your lovers are destroyed. The lovers being, of course, all of their allies. Which they weren't supposed to have because they were supposed to trust in the Lord. I spoke to you in your prosperity, but you said, I will not hear. This has been your manner from your youth that you did not obey my voice. The wind shall eat up all your rulers and your lovers shall go into captivity. Surely then you will be ashamed and humiliated for all your wickedness. O oh, inhabitant of Lebanon, making your nest in the cedars, how gracious will you be when pangs come upon you like the pain of a woman in labor. So during one of the worst times in the history of Israel and Judah, Jehoiakim, the son of Josiah, revealed that he was more concerned with building his own spacious palace than he was in building a righteous kingdom and nation. And sadly, even using unpaid Jewish slave labor to do it. That was the oppression that he was using upon the people. To accomplish all of this, 
He taxed the people heavily to pay tribute to Pharaoh Necho, as well as to finance his palace. The people are in trouble because they're in captivity, but he's out getting more money to build his palace, even more than what Solomon had already done to it. And in verses 15 through 17, Jeremiah contrasted Jehoiakim with his father Josiah, who had done what was just and right before the Lord and his people. Defending the cause of the poor and needy as God expected his kings to do. Folks, bottom line is, the kings of Judah and of Israel as well, these kings were to know their God. And to know their God was to do what God commanded them to do for the sake of his people and for the kingdom of God. He was to nurture the flock, not decimate the flock, which means, you know, to destroy it in essence. He wasn't to destroy it, he was to nurture it. Oh, how the law was mistreated! The law was mistreated here by these kings. Go all the way back to Leviticus, to the law, in Leviticus 19, verse 13. Leviticus 19, verse 13. You shall not cheat your neighbor, nor rob him. What does it tell us about Jehoiakim? He never paid the people who did the work. You shall not cheat your neighbor, nor rob him. The wages of him who is hired shall not remain with you all night until morning. In other words, you better pay it when it's time for them to go home. Deuteronomy chapter 24, verses 14 and 15. You shall not oppress a hired servant who is poor and needy, whether one of your brethren or one of the aliens who is in your land within your gates. Each day you shall give him his wages and not let the sun go down on it, for he is poor and he has set his heart on it, lest he cry out against you to the Lord and it be sin to you. I want you to know that this concept is not Old Testament. It's Bible. Because in James chapter 5, verse one through, verses 1 through five, 6, we see the very same thing. In the New Testament, Come now, you rich, weep and howl for your miseries that are coming upon you. Your riches are corrupted and your garments are moth-eaten. Your gold and silver are corroded and their corrosion will be a witness against you and will eat your flesh like fire. You have heaped up treasure in the last days. Indeed, the wages of the laborers who mold your fields, which you kept back by fraud, cry out. The cries of the reapers have reached the ears of the Lord of Sabaoth, which is the Lord of hosts, the Lord of the armies of heaven. In other words, you have lived on the earth in pleasure and luxury. You have fattened your hearts as in a day of slaughter. You have condemned, you have murdered the just he does not resist you. The law was mistreated. The law was forsaken. And a nation would be judged for it. The nation that was supposed to be God's chosen people. I'd like for you to go back in your text in, in Jeremiah 22 and look at verse 15, if you will. Does it make you a king because you compete with cedar? 
Does it make you a king because your house is full of cedar? Does it make you a king because you enclose yourself in cedar? That's the, that's the gist of this, of this sentence, of this question. Does it make you a king because you enclose yourself with cedar? Jeremiah reminds Jehoiakim that his father Josiah lived comfortably and, and still did what was just and right. In other words, again, no one is saying, you know, you can't enjoy some things in life. But if all it is is to bring things into your life and never do what the Word of God says to help others, then it's all about you and not about God. Josiah cared for others and God blessed him. See, that's the thing. Josiah cared for others and God blessed him. I want you to notice the, 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 the order here. It wasn't as if Josiah said, you know, if I go out and help people, I'll get stuff for me. Do you understand the order? Because there are some people who are kind of getting that kind of thought in churches today that says, you know, if you'll do this, this, and this, God will bless you. Folks, just do what God says. He's going to bless you anyway. And He knows exactly what you need, so whatever you get for what you need, that's your blessing. Jehoiakim only thought of himself. That was was the problem here. Eventually he wouldn't be buried like a king as his father was. When when an animal died in the city, he was just simply dragged away from the spot where it died and and thrown outside the gates. That's why it says he would be buried like a donkey. I mean, donkeys must be, you know, noble animals, but still an animal. Jehoiakim's body Jehoiakim's body would be treated with the same contempt. Jehoiakim died in late 598 BC as Nebuchadnezzar was advancing on Jerusalem to punish the city for rebellion. It might be as some believe that Jehoiakim was assassinated. We're not really sure, but it might be that Jehoiakim was assassinated in, a, in an attempt to appease Nebuchadnezzar and spare the city. That's possible. That's not necessarily what happened. Others believe that Nebuchadnezzar put him out of his misery. But in any event, that was his end. And then in verse 20, verse 20 refers to the fact that along with her kings being overthrown, Judah was now left without allies because it says, For all your lovers are destroyed. You went after other lovers when I all along who love you and chose you because I loved you, you forsook me. So all of your lovers now are destroyed. All of, all of the, 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 the alliances that they made with the foreign nations, those nations, those pagan nations, were destroyed as well. 
So their trust was no longer in God. They trusted in things like chariots and horses. They trusted in pagan alliances. They trusted in the cedars of Lebanon. All in all, they trusted in the things of this world and not in the God who loved them and, and created them to be His messengers to the world of His existence, of His power, of His love, of His mercy, of His justice and righteousness and holiness and overall sovereignty and rule and reign of all creation. That's what Israel was to be for God to the world and even to the Gentiles. Isaiah 42 verse 6. I, the Lord, have called you in righteousness and will hold your hand. I will keep you and give you as a covenant to the people, as a light to the Gentiles. Can you imagine when God says, I will hold your hand? (laughs) Well, in reality, this is also a messianic song or a messianic statement. And certainly, you know, Jesus is going to be faithful when he comes. But when the children of Israel are called, they were supposed to, first of all, accept Messiah and receive Messiah, which they didn't do. So that was one failure there. Isaiah 49, verse 6. Let's let's move down to uh, about seven chapters over. Isaiah 49, verse 6. Indeed, he says, It is too small a thing that you should be my servant to raise up the tribes of Jacob and to restore the preserved ones of Israel. I will also give you as a light to the Gentiles that you should be my salvation to the ends of the earth. Now this was primarily for Israel. The true light of the Gentiles, of course, is Jesus Christ. So again, an, another messianic uh, uh, illusion here. Not illusion, allusion. <laughs> Isaiah 60, verses 1 through 3. Arise, shine, for your light has come. And the glory of the Lord is risen upon you, for behold, the darkness shall cover the earth and deep darkness of people, but the Lord will arise over you, and His glory will be seen upon you. The Gentiles shall come to your light, and the kings to the brightness of your rising. And this is truly speaking of Israel here. But instead, what did they do? They didn't put their trust in God. They put their trust... And things like chariots, Psalm 20, verse 7. Some trust in chariots and some in horses. But we will remember the name of the Lord our God. They did not. God's own people did not. Why? Because the things of the world became more important to them than the God who created them. And in 1 John chapter 2, verses 15 through 17, as clear as this can be, I, I, I chose this to show you the very heart that they were going, that they were dealing with in their own life. John says to us, do not love the world or the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life is not of the Father, but is of the world. Again, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, the pride of life. Do you know that that this dilemma has been from the very beginning of mankind? The lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, the pride of life. The lust of the flesh in the garden. The temptation to take the fruit from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil that God said, 
Do not take of that tree, because on the day that you do, you will surely die. The flesh lusted after it. The lust of the eyes, serpent, tempted Eve by making her look at it to see the beauty of it. The lust of the eyes. The pride of life. Listen, you will not surely die. You'll be like God when you eat this fruit. The lies of the enemy. The lies of the enemy. For all that is in the world. The lust of the flesh. The lust of the eyes. The pride of life. Do you know we still deal with that today? And somehow, in an even greater sense, verse 16 there, we still deal with it today. In an even greater way, because of all of the many facets and ways of being tempted away from the things of God. Show verse 16, please. We can't let let this go. I want you to notice that he says, it is not of the Father, but it is of the world. I was reading something the other day that was written many years ago. The thought had come through this saint of the Lord, a wonderful separated, you know, separated from the world saint, just, you know, wondering why it was that people just wanted to live here and stay here and not have that heart like Paul who said, you know, for to me to live is Christ, but to die is gain. And it should make us wonder sometimes when we think, you know, what's attaching us to this world? What's keeping us here? You know, the Lord can come at any moment. And that, you know, of course, I could change everything. But until the day of Christ, what, what really keeps us here? I think, first of all, we have to think, you know, what keeps us here is the fact that God has us here to be his servants share the love of Christ, to show the life of Christ in us. But if this is all that, you know, some people want to hold on to, I I want you to remember Lot's wife. Just that one simple turn, turning back to Sodom. When they were commanded, and she heard, you know, don't look back. What it can do to a life. And it takes, it takes a lot of prayer and it takes a lot of time spent with the Lord to say, Lord, I, I need to focus my attention not on this world and the things of this world, but on heavenly things. But not to be so heavenly minded that I'm of no earthly good. 
but I want to remember that eternity is always before me. And to be with the Lord is better. But until God chooses, then I want to keep myself from those things that will draw me to want to stay here. Jesus said, you're not of this world. John said, we're not of this world. Thank God that God provides everything we need in this life and in life and godliness, but we're not of this world. That's why I wanted to concentrate on this thought. All that is in the world, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, the pride of life, is not of the Father, but it's of the world. Now we could go to verse 17, and the world is passing away. And the lust of it is passing away, but he who does the will of God abides forever. He who does the will of God, there's the key. He who does the will of God abides forever. Well, lastly, because of time, we move from the covetousness of Jehoiakim to the childlessness of Coniah. And I call him Coniah because that's what he's called in this passage. But his name is Jehoiakim or Jehoiakim. Uh, and, and Jeremiah 22, let's look at the last few verses here, verses 24 to 30. As I live, says the Lord, though Coniah, the son of Jehoiakim, king of Judah, were the, were the signet on my right hand, yet I would pluck you off. If, 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 if this... Coniah was this signet ring. He'd just pluck it and throw it off, you know. And he says, I will give you into the hand of those who seek your life and into the hand of those whose face you fear. The hand of Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, and the hand of the Chaldeans. So I will cast you out and your mother who bore you into another country where you were, born, were, were not born, and, and there you shall die. But to the land to which they desire to return, they shall, they, there they shall not return. Now notice this question. Is this man, Kaniah, a despised, broken idol? Even this king had been lifted up as some kind of a, an idol. You know what we call him today? They're using this term a lot on, on people. A rock star. It had been a rock star. But God says, is this man, Kaniah, a despised, broken idol? A vessel? in which is no pleasure. The reason he asked that question is because, you know, that indeed he was. He was somebody they thought, he's our hope. He's going to bring the change we need. He's our hope. But then God asks another question. Why are they cast out, he and his descendants, and cast into a land which they do not know? Oh, earth, earth, earth! Hear the word of the Lord. God is having the, the prophet cry out to all of the earth. You know, when something's repeated three times, that is of utmost importance. Thus says the Lord, write this man down as childless, A man who shall not prosper in his days, for none of his descendants shall prosper. Sitting on the throne of David and ruling anymore in Judah. He is the symbol of childlessness. So to give you some sense of the evil of this king, 
Jehoiakim, or Chin. God labels him Koniah because he has removed his own name, Yah, from Yakoniah or Jehoiakim. In effect, God is saying, don't identify me with this man. He also says in so many words, if he were the signet ring on my finger, I would take it off and hand it to the Babylonians. Which, of course, he did. Now, this is something interesting that uh, J. Vernon McGee writes. He says, God cries to the whole earth to be his witness. No descendant of Kaniah will sit on the throne of David or rule anymore in Judah. This is one reason that Joseph, the husband of Mary, by the way, this is one reason that Joseph could not have been the father of Jesus. Joseph was in the line of Jeconiah. And God says, no child of that line will sit on the throne of David. You can read it yourself, Matthew chapter 1. But that's not, that's not a problem here. We all know that, right? Not a problem. Because, uh, of course, we know that through Joseph, uh, Jesus may have had the legal title to the throne. But in Jesus' genealogy, through Mary, read the Gospel of Luke, the pure line came through David's son, Nathan. And we don't have enough time to go through that. Maybe one day we'll, we'll go through that uh, ge- uh, genealogy study of, of Jesus. But uh, just, just to, to be clear, when you read the, about the 14 generations in Matthew chapter 1, and there are three sections of 14 generations, uh, it, it, one of them ends with Jehoiakim, and, and that's it, okay? And so they're, they're, you know, that, that, that was done there. Uh, but anyway, Jehoiakim and his mother's fate, because his mother's mentioned here, can also be read in 2 Kings 24. Uh, let me read that to you, 2 Kings 24, verses 8 through 12. Uh, Jehoiakim was 18 years old when he became king. Uh, some translations might read 8 years old, uh, but he was 18. Uh, when he became king, and he reigned in Jerusalem three months. His mother's name was Nehushta, the daughter of Elnathan of Jerusalem. And he did evil in the sight of the Lord according to all that his father had done. At that time, the servants of Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, came up against Jerusalem, and the city was besieged. And uh, Nebuchadnezzar, king of uh, Babylon, came against the city as his servants were besieging it. Uh, then Jehoiachin, uh, king of Judah, his mother, his servants, his princes, and his officers went out to the king of Babylon. And the king of Babylon, in the eighth year of his reign, took him prisoner. So again, another Judean king becomes a prisoner of Babylon. And Second Kings, just jump down to verse 15 for time. And he carried Jehoiakim captive to Babylon, the king's mother, the king's wives, uh, his officers, and the mighty of the land he carried into captivity from Jerusalem to Babylon and never again to return. These kings all may have thought that they had some relationship to God simply because they were kings of Judah. And also being that their father Josiah certainly did have a relationship to God. We cannot count on our parents' relationship to God and think that that's going to be enough for us. Somebody once wrote a book called God Has No Grandchildren. And that is true. God has no grandchildren. He only has children those who come to him by faith in Jesus Christ. 
But we know that their life wasn't a reflection. Certainly wasn't a reflection of the personal and intimate relationship and fellowship that a person can have with Jesus Christ. So they didn't have a personal relationship with their Savior and their God. Because of the way they lived. I mean, that, that was, that's why we read all those sections in Second Kings. So that we could see how evil they were, what they did, even though they should have known better, but didn't do what they should have done. So it brings us to mind to where we are today. I want, I want to read this particular section and close with this. It comes from Luke chapter 6. And in verse 46 it says, But why do you call me Lord, Lord? And do not the things which I say. Whoever comes to me and hears my sayings and does them, I will show you whom he is like. He is like a man building a house who dug deep and laid the foundation on the rock. And when the flood arose, the stream beat vehemently against that house and could not shake it, for it was founded on the rock. But, but he who heard and did nothing is like a man who built a house on the earth without a foundation, against which the stream beat vehemently, and immediately it fell, and the ruin of that house was great. The ruin of the house of David was great. In the times of these last kings of Judah. And of course, the Lord would eventually restore the nation. He promised that restoration. And of course, we sit, out, we sit down here 3,000 some years or thereabouts almost 3,000 years in history and know how much God still loves His people and still is going to be faithful to keep His side of the covenant to bring them back into the land which He has already begun so that the, the time that is necessary to complete their chastisement as a people the last seven years of the 490 years that they were to be judged will come to a close and of course at that point in time is the return and the second coming of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ but the spiritual truths that we have seen today, that we have been awakened to today, should refresh our hearts and our minds to seek after the Lord each and every day, to rejoice in the work that has already been done by Jesus Christ Himself on the cross. And in rising from the dead. And then to live our lives with our eyes upon eternity. With our eyes looking up 
As the Lord said, look up because your redemption draws near. And if it, it, was, it was that way 2,000 years ago when he first said those words, it's even closer now than it was then. Keep looking up because your redemption draws nigh. It draws near. Jesus is coming soon. We need to live our lives with that anticipation. But in that righteousness and godliness and holiness that we can only live because we are filled with the Spirit of God. Can't do it any other way. It's Christ in us, the hope of glory. There's no hope any other way. Christ in us, the hope of glory. Let's pray.